Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks given to the Farnham U3A World History Group. In this talk, Michael Abair tells us about Guildford in August 1914, at the time of the start of the First World War. Guildford at the outbreak of the First World War in 1914. Now, whilst this talk is about Guildford, the story would be exactly, or almost exactly the same if it was in any similar sized county town, major town in virtually any other part of the country. Let's first of all look at Britain as a whole in 1914. Well, it was a different world to the one we now live in and, and enjoy. Very different. The news was dominated by strikes, suffragette protests, troubles in Ireland. The class system was much more pronounced than it is today. Those with money lived a very, very comfortable lifestyle, but those without it were very, very poor. Housing for these poor people was terrible, really ghastly. A few of the things that happened that year were the first passenger to loop the loop in an aircraft, Actually, the first person to achieve it was in the previous year, 1913. That was a chap called Pyotr Nestorev. He did it in Kiev, in Ukraine. He was promptly arrested for endangering government property. Then a few weeks later, a Frenchman, Adolphe Pegot, did it as well. The Russian was promptly released from prison, promoted to captain, and the trophy for the World Aerobatic Championships each year is still called the Nestorov Trophy after him. The first woman to loop the loop, as a matter of interest, took place the following year, 1915. Anyway, getting back to 1914, 7,000 coal porters went on strike in an exceptionally cold winter at the beginning of the year, leaving the population of London and southeast England especially shivering. Charlie Chaplin made his film debut in a short comedy film, Making a Living. The Britannic, sister ship to the Titanic, was launched at Harland and Wolfe's <laughs> shipyard in Belfast. The price of a copy of The Times was halved to one penny. George Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion opened at His Majesty's Theatre in London. England beat France 39-13 to win a second consecutive Rugby Grand Slam in, of course, the Five Nations Tournament. JT Jack Hearn, the Middlesex and England bowler, at the age of 47, became the first cricketer to take 3,000 wickets. W.G. Grace retired from first-class cricket at the age of 66. Burnley beat Liverpool 1-0 in the Football Cup final at Crystal Palace in front of King George V. And two British ladies contested the Wimbledon final. Uh, Dorothea Lambert Chambers defeating Ethel Larkham. Motor racing at Brooklands was popular amongst the wealthy. And in 1914, several attempts at land speed records were attempted by the Englishman L.G. Hornstead in his 200 horsepower Benz motor car. The latest dance craze was the tango, newly introduced from Argentina. This was nearly a century before Strictly Come Dancing. And I suppose even the late Bruce Forsyth wasn't that old then. But during all this, countless people, ordinary people, died of hunger and lack of medical care. An estimated 10% of the population were unable to feed themselves adequately, and some 2 million men, plus their dependents, lived in poverty, living on less than 25 shillings a week. 
women still had no vote, despite suffragettes and suffragist movements around the country, including locally in Guildford, of course. We've all heard about the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand and his wife in Sarajevo on the 28th of June, but it wasn't until the end of July, a month later, that the nation awoke to a small cloud on a sunny horizon. But this cloud got bigger and blacker. This cloud put a dark shadow across most of Europe and Asia. In Guildford, as in the rest of the country, the population flatly refused to believe that war was coming. On Saturday, the 1st of August, the Guildford advertiser was full of local cricket fixtures, advertisements for Dennis Brothers Special Repairs Department, telephone Guildford 129 if you want it. But while the newspaper was still on the streets, the advertiser arranged that messages of importance would be notified to them, and they set up notice boards outside their offices. These notice boards were changing rapidly as news came in, and the public flocked to read about developments. They read that Russia was mobilizing, that Austria-Hungary had declared war on Russia, Germany had given ultimatums to both Russia and France, the people of the town learned that bank rate had been raised at two eight percent and then raised again to ten percent a couple of hours later. The news that Italy, part of the triple alliance of Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Italy, that Italy was remaining neutral came as a great relief. But despite the signs, the people refused to admit that war was really coming. Sunday, the second of August, notices told of Germany declaring war on Russia. Huge crowds read this and began to feel a shiver of fear wondering if Britain might might yet get involved, and wondered if Austria-Hungary could keep out of the struggle. Popular opinion swayed first one way, then the other, and then back again. The German ambassador and his entire staff had left St. Petersburg, and the German forces were mobilizing. This news was swiftly followed by the news that the French forces were also mobilizing. The significance of each news item was eagerly discussed by the waiting crowds who pushed and shoved and pressed to read the news for themselves. One piece of news that created a stir was that Germany had violated the first Treaty of London, which had been signed to guarantee the independence of Belgium by invading neutral Luxembourg, the scrap of paper incident as it became known. This seemed to bring the whole thing nearer to home with the possibility of Great Britain getting involved. Next came rumours that Germany had crossed the border into France and that the Russian army was on the move. Then came another rumour, totally incorrect as it turned out, that 20,000 Germans had been repulsed with heavy losses near Nancy in eastern France by the French army. This showed how easily such rumours could spread at times like 1914. Another similar incident occurred on that Sunday when a newspaper vendors from London started selling their papers in Guildford with a headline, Great Naval Battle in the North Sea. The borough's chief constable, Mr. W.V. Nicholas, had all of them brought to the police station, had them all cautioned and sent on the next train back to London. The streets of Guildford, like every other town, were like a tinderbox waiting to ignite. At 9.30 p.m. on the Sunday, His Majesty's government announced the mobilization of the Naval Reserve. The people of the town felt generally that this was a move towards supporting France. An hour later, at 10.30 p.m., the posters announced that the cabinet had risen and was to reconvene the following morning, Bank Holiday Monday. That was something that was extraordinarily unusual, as gentlemen of such status expected to spend the bank holiday 
with their families, or in the case of some of them, other people's families, of course, in their homes in the country. Bank Holiday Monday, that's the 3rd of August, dawned. Bank holidays, which had been introduced by the Bank Holiday Act of 1871, were normally a chance for the people of the toe to get out of town themselves, often to the seaside by train. But this was to be the tensest one ever. The majority of the country absorbed by the news coming in steadily from continental Europe. The local newspaper offices stayed open all day to pass on news from the press association. Postal workers had been called in especially early to distribute the mobilization letters to the naval reservists. An armed sentry was posted outside the post office in North Street, which caused serious concern. A Reuters telegram arrived saying that the German invasion of Belgium was imminent. And by this time, most of the population of Guildford feared that war was unavoidable. Another Reuters telegram confirmed that the British Mediterranean fleet had cleared for action, that the entire British Navy had mobilized and that the army was in the course of mobilizing. According to Sir Edward Grey, the foreign secretary, his majesty's government was not committed to supporting France. Then at that point, news censorship was introduced to avoid information of use to potential enemies being promoted. On Monday evening, small parties of army reservists have started to report to Stoughton Barracks. That's the depot of the Queen's Royal West Surrey Regiment and had started to be dispatched in their units. A notice was put up outside the Guildhall announcing that ships may be requisitioned. Well, I'm not sure that there are going to be that many ships suitable in the town of Guildford, but that's another matter. A royal proclamation calling up all territorials did get great excitement. It read, this is a mouthful, His Majesty the King, having been graciously pleased to order by proclamation that directions be given to the Army Council for embodying the territorial force, all men belonging to the said force are required to report themselves immediately at their headquarters. By now, the people of Guildford realized that war was not a threat or a possibility, but a fact. The men of the 5th Battalion of the Queen's Royal West Surrey Regiment were undergoing their annual training near Salisbury when the crisis arose. They were under the command of Colonel uh, the Honourable Arthur G. Broderick, brother of the then Viscount and later the Earl of Middleton, with Major Sladen, his second in command. They returned to Guildford immediately by train to find that thousands were waiting at Guildford Station to welcome them. They marched behind a fife and drum band along the Farnham Road and then across the High Street, Market Street and Hayden Place to the Drill Hall. Some of you may know the, the route that they would have taken. Quite a lot of young men joined in behind them to offer their services. Troops marching smartly behind a band soon became a key part of recruitment. We must remember that conscription did not come in for a couple of years until 1916. By that time, reservists had flooded to the barracks at Stoughton, and owners of motor vehicles were given notice that they must have their vehicles ready at 12 hours notice in case they were required for military use. Both Dennis Brothers and Drummond Brothers, the both engineering companies, were both closed for their summer holidays at this time. They were big companies. But their workers were informed by letter and also by advertisements in the newspaper that they should execute any government orders for military requirements. News came through that the German reply on Belgian neutrality was unsatisfactory and that the government had issued an ultimatum to Germany 
to expire at midnight, demanding that Belgium should be respected. There was no doubt then that war was coming and coming fast. According to many sources, nothing but the inevitable war was spoken about. But somehow the Guildford and District Allotment Holders Society managed to hold a very good produce show over that bank holiday weekend. Surprisingly, one of the most popular records available at Clark's Music Shop was a release by the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. It was a great relief to many that Great Britain had its allies and the Empire to assist in the forthcoming war. Meanwhile, advertising started for special constables so that the police reservists could be called up to the army. It was announced that Colonel J.W. Ray, formerly of the Inniskillen Fusiliers, was to be appointed recruitment officer for the 2nd Regimental District. He lived in Guildford at the Croft in Pitt Farm Road, and he was secretary superintendent of the Schiff home in Cobham. Soon, prices in the town's cattle markets started to rise, as many people, fearing shortages to come, started to stockpile goods, which started to cause shortages. And with shortages, prices started to go up. Mutton was up by a penny halfpenny a pound, beef up a penny a pound, and pork a halfpenny. Wheat shot up eight shillings a quarter, while oats rose by four shillings and barley two shillings. Eight of the town's principal provision firms issued a joint notice saying that they would keep prices as low as possible and that there were plenty of provisions in the town for two months. Before long, a sense of patriotism took over and stockpiling largely stopped. Many of those who'd been out panic buying started to feel very guilty and ashamed as the price rises affected the poor and the elderly most seriously. It was the beginning of a sense of all in it together that started to show through. By 11 p.m. our time, or midnight Berlin time, on Bank Holiday Monday, large crowds started to assemble in Market Street for news of the ultimatum, despite everybody there knowing perfectly well what the answer would be. At half past 11, an incorrect message came through from the Press Association saying that Germany had declared war on Great Britain and the Empire, followed almost immediately by a retraction and a corrected version saying that Great Britain had declared war on Germany. The crowds immediately burst into cheering and hat waving. All men and women wore hats, of course, in those days, followed by patriotic singing of the national anthem and rule Britannia. Once war was declared, the people, not only of Guildford, but of the entire country, started to feel bewildered and confused. So much had happened in such a short time. It was almost as if one minute there was Edwardian gentility and the next minute war. By this time, eight or nine countries were involved, including Great Britain, Germany, France, Belgium, Russia, Serbia, and one or two smaller countries. It was perfectly clear, even at that stage, that several others would soon get involved, the British Empire included. Certainly in Britain, and Guildford was typical of towns across the entire country, there was a tremendous sense of, of patriotism and courage to do the right thing for king and country. The Liberal candidate for Guildford, the Honourable A.J. Davy, who was to lose his life later when the Leinster was torpedoed in the Irish Sea, gave a plea for unity, although I think that sense of unity was already there by that time. He said, we must face war without any sort of whimpering, however dire the results of that conflict. Both the local liberal and conservative associations in Guildford decided immediately to give up all their meetings 
for as long as war lasted. Strangely, the Conservative MP, Edgar Horne, seems to have had little to say about these momentous times. He was the heir to the chairman of the Prudential Assurance. He was a surveyor by profession. But perhaps he was too busy looking after his 200-acre estate in Shackleford, including almost all of the village and the properties there. It was the war, too, that killed the passive resistance movement. This movement had been set up to resist the Education Act, 1902. Their members had undertaken not to pay their rates, as some of that money went to pay for maintaining denominational religious training. Things like this demonstrate the all-in-it-together attitude that was to, to come about at that time. The rush to join up continued, both in the drill hall and at Stoughton Barracks. Many underage boys tried to lie about their age to join the army, and several managed to, to get in. The first thing any recruit had to do was to pass the medical. One man walked all the way from Putnam to Guildford, only to be told that his teeth were too bad and he couldn't join up. He famously said, what do my teeth matter? You don't want me to eat the Germans, do you? The territorials, including many who had been training near Salisbury, we heard about them earlier, were in the town by Monday night, the 4th of August. They were quickly followed by other companies of the regiment from Godalming, Woking, Hazelmere, Farnham, Camberley, Dorking, Reigate. Local doctors were quickly appointed to help the army doctors with medical checks for recruits as well as for existing soldiers. Those who failed were devastated, while those who passed were given whatever items of kit and equipment might be available from the quartermaster's stock at Stoughton. The battalion left in two stages, the first on Tuesday just after 4pm, initially via Rochester. They left from Guildford Station with huge crowds cheering them on their way, marching the reversed route to the one they'd taken a couple of days previously. The mayor, the town clerk, the rector of Holy Trinity Church, the vicar of Stoughton, who was also padre of the regiment, all arrived to wish the soldiers a safe and swift return. As we now know, such a dreadful number failed to return, and the return trip for most of the survivors was certainly not soon. The second section followed the same route two and a half hours later and enjoyed a similar send-off. They went initially to Maidstone. These, of course, were the reservists. The regulars were soon posted from Guildford. The 1st Battalion went to Southampton, boarded the Braemar and were ferried over the channel to Le Havre, then went straight to the front line. The 2nd Battalion were at the time based in South Africa. The regiment was part of the 3rd Infantry Brigade, who were one of the very first to be involved and fighting in the war. Soon Kitchener was appealing for more recruits with his famous slogan, Your King and Country Need You which produced amazing results. There were so many recruits turning up wanting to join the army that an additional recruitment centre had to be opened up in the county and borough halls in North Street, where local general practitioner, Dr. Levick, carried out all the medicals. There was great concern about the safety of railway lines, bridges and tunnels, as it was feared that enemy spies were everywhere. The lines were guarded by civilians, members of rifle clubs, scouts, many, many others. Amongst the local guards were the High Sheriff, the Earl of Onslow, and the Earl of Lovelace. Some of these civilian guards were armed, and the people knew that if challenged, they needed to respond immediately, or they might well be shot. Several near accidents took place in the Guildford area, but as far as I can ascertain, nothing too serious went wrong. 
There were a few incidents where suspected spies were involved, though. A couple of days after the outbreak of war, it was reported that two spies had been seen in the railway tunnel in St Catharines. That's the railway tunnel near the park and ride at Artington that some of you might know. But eventually it was a cause of great disappointment. What happened was that a London newspaper had a report, incorrect as it turned out, that a tunnel at Guildford had been blown up. They immediately sent two photographers down to get pictures for the paper, and they were the two spies. On another occasion, a man who'd been visiting friends in Farnham was waiting at the station, at Farnham Station that is, for his train to return home to Guildford. He was carrying a camera and was writing in a notebook. A railway sentry was taking a great deal of interest in, in him, and the man had just written in his notebook, I hope the man looking at me doesn't think I'm a spy, when the sentry arrested him and took his camera. Everyone was very disappointed when the slides were developed, only to show that the spy had been taking pictures of some of his friends in Farnham. This shows the level of suspicion that existed in Britain at that time. In 1914, horses were the main means of transport and of pulling heavy loads. Horses were in great demand for the army, of course, and anyone owning horses that might be of use to the army received a notification that they were likely to be impressed. These owners were required to take their horses to Guildford's cattle market in Woodbridge Road. Five shillings per horse was paid to the person who actually brought them in, and fair value was supposed to be paid for the horses. This fair price was ascertained by the purchasing officer, Mr Hutchinson Driver from Woking. Hundreds of horses were brought in and large numbers of them were bought. On the 15th of August, the Lord Lieutenant of Surrey, Colonel the Honourable Henry Cubitt, later Lord Ashcombe, wrote to the county's newspapers proposing that a county committee for war purposes be formed. It suggested that recruitment to Lord Kitchener's army should be under the auspices of the Surrey County Territorial Association, but the job proved to be far too big for them to handle. The first major recruitment drive in the town took place soon afterwards. The old tried and tested routine of a march led by a band. Over 40 men signed up there and then, with several similar events being held over the next few days. All had good results for recruitment. The numbers coming forward seemed to depend on the newspaper coverage at that particular time. On the 23rd of August, the first shots were fired at the Battle of Mons the first major engagement of the British Expeditionary Force. Then on the 6th of September, trench warfare began with the Battle of the Marne, where the German advance towards Paris was stopped by the Allies. By mid-October, fighting erupted in Flanders, where the German army tried to capture the town of Ypres from the British Expeditionary Force, including soldiers from Guildford and the surrounding area. The Germans were desperately trying to access the Channel ports, but were unable to get through, and they lost about 20,000 men in that single battle. The reputation of General Douglas Haig never shone brighter. All this was studied by the people of Guildford, and although many opinions were expressed, the general feeling was that the war would be a short-lived affair. It was only a few weeks later, on the 16th of December, that fear really began to spread, and it all happened a long way from Guildford. The German Navy started to shell the towns on the east coast of Britain, Scarborough, Whitby, Hartlepool. This caused panic amongst the population of the entire country, 
even as far away as Guildford. This became even more pronounced when in the following January, Zeppelin raids started to occur, initially along the East Coast. But as some of you will know, Guildford uh, did have a Zeppelin raid itself later on. So what was the feeling in Guildford? Well, according to the Guildford advertiser, there was a sense of dread, a feeling that our men were doing their patriotic bit for Britain and the King, and a feeling that we were all in it together, and a fear that it might not be quite such a quick affair as the population had expected. The same or very similar would have been felt in every other town in Britain. I think people began to realise that the world was changing, but few, if any, would have realised how much change there would be, and few, if any, could envisage Britain without its empire. Certainly none would have had any concept of the dreadful casualties that would come from this war, or that just over 20 short years after the eventual armistice, Britain would be back at war with Germany again. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A History Group, or the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening.